Well, howdy there, folks. It's Heather back with another episode of my Strike Boat audiobook podcast. This is episode number seven, chapter five. We're going to divide this chapter into two parts because it is a long chapter. Uh, So welcome. If you're just joining us here, my name is Heather. I am a new Canadian author. I have released my first novel. It's called Strike Boat, and I am podcasting it here as a free audiobook to increase the audience while I work on the sequel, Archipelago. So if you're new, go back to the beginning, listen to episode one first, and subscribe for updates. And with that in mind, it is January 14th today, two weeks into the new year already. I hope wherever you are listening to this, you are staying positive and keeping your spirits up and looking forward to better days ahead. I know I sure am. So with that, Let's get started on the first half of Chapter 5. Chapter 5, Fallon. Outside the flag headquarters, Lawrence Fallon climbed behind the wheel of his custom thrust convertible and lit a smoke. He took a few quick puffs and revved the engine to the red line, then flipped his cigarette out the window. The mood he was in, tobacco wasn't strong enough. He reached across the console to the glove compartment and found his silver vial of cocaine. Inside the vial, a tiny silver tray was fitted with a pinky finger cap. He slid it onto the end of his baby finger, then plunged it into the vial. When he pulled it back out, the mechanism inside the vial had laid out a generous line of cocaine that was neatly arranged on the small silver platform. He held it up to his nose and snorted it, then did a couple more. As the cocaine hit his bloodstream, Fallon felt his tension start to ease. That's better, he said. He shifted into drive and guided the thrust convertible out onto the access road, then took the collector lane that led to Highway 401. Waiting at a red light, he drummed on the steering wheel with his fingers, then gnawed on a hangnail that stuck out from his thumb. By the time the light turned green, he had peeled a strip of skin back from the quick. A drop of blood appeared, swelled rapidly, then dripped down his knuckle. Shit, he said, sucking it into his mouth. A sour feeling had been plaguing him since the meeting. Anderson had poked some holes in Fallon's parade. That was putting it mildly, and going to the plant to smile and pose for cameras was the last thing that he felt like doing. The thrust he was driving was a pilot car a prototype for the new line his engineers were working on. It had the same chassis and rounded body style of the original thrust, but this one was a six-cylinder. Because the cars he sold ran on natural gas, they could be marketed under the green insignia, which was the main reason that they sold so well. People wanted a vehicle they could feel good about driving, one that was less harmful to the environment. He jammed it into passing gear and floored it, browning into his rear view, the plume of black exhaust that wafted out behind him like an accusation. Fallon's life was all about appearances, and when you marketed a vehicle on greenwashing, it didn't look too good with a trail of thick black smog behind it. Fucking poindexters, he grunted. His engineers were costing him a fortune. They kept telling him they had this problem licked, but there it was again. A light turned yellow up ahead. He felt his nerves twitch from the coke as he accelerated, but an aging SUV had pulled out in front of him. He had to slam the brakes to keep from hitting it. Christ, he muttered, fuming. 
His mood was not improving. He did another hit of coke to make the drive go by more quickly. The cross-traffic light turned yellow. He stashed the vial in the glove box, then chirped the wheels and gunned it on the green. He darted around the startled driver of the SUV, noticing with satisfaction that the ochre cloud of his exhaust had floated into her vehicle through the open window. Bitch, he smirked, watching the, in the rear view as the woman driving waved an arm in front of her face to dispel his fumes. Lawrence Fallon grinned. He was not a man who cared about the plight of others. Lawrence Fallon cared about himself. As he shifted into fifth and rocketed up the 401's westbound lanes, his thoughts turned backward over the five years since the thrust's inception. It had taken balls to go in front of Eric Cochran, but balls he'd always had in spades. He'd known the fuel companies had been clamoring to frack the Great Lakes region, but the government was standing firm on not allowing it. Then Fallon's big idea had hit him. What if he hired someone to design a network of small-scale frack sites that would operate under the radar and a line of cars that ran exclusively on the natural gas they harvested? He'd hired a team of engineers to do the math, and wouldn't you know, they'd made it workable. It had taken balls to go to Cochrane with his vision, but after some convincing, Cochrane had fronted him the funds to build the test site. For a fee, of course, and for a piece of Fallon's profits in perpetuity. Now that things were up and running, Cochrane took a percentage of the sale of every thrust. That was okay with Lawrence Fallon, because in Fallon's mind, that meant Cochrane was also holding part of the bag. If they got caught, Cochrane would be on his side, and that was one powerful ally to have. Besides, Fallon was making more money than he'd ever imagined possible. After the initial small-scale fracking drill bore started to produce high-quality natural gas with great success, they had developed a program to woo landowners to get in on the action, offering them a very handsome rate of rental for the acre or so of land that they needed to build the system. Cash under the table, and who didn't love a little of that? When a boost in production was needed, Fallon would wine and dine the landowners, who happened to own farms above a rich shale pocket. He was very good at schmoozing. It was one of his main talents in life. He also offered them a finder's fee for giving up the names of like-minded other landowners. And in this way, the covert fracking sites had multiplied. The plan worked like a charm, the underground machinery humming merrily away under the surface-level buildings, cranking out the natural gas, while at the same time, his plant was cranking out the thrusts. They sold like hotcakes to environmentally conscious individuals, which was a stroke of brilliance out of Fallon's own mind that he couldn't, feel, couldn't help feeling internally smug about. And the only fly in the ointment had been the goddamned auto workers union. The factory in Mount Bridges had been making large eight-cylinder sedans when Fallon came along with his offer to purchase, and their sales had been down to a trickle. Retrofitting an existing plant was more expedient than building a new one, and so he'd whittled the former owners down. But keeping the employees unionized had been part of the bargain that the old owners had struck, and the AWU was a pain in Fallon's ass. Still, he had a plan to get them out. Step one had been the inclusion of temp workers in the last contract. 
Now Anderson's presentation had made it look like the thrust production was about to become a thing of the past, so even that idea was scuttled. Fallon couldn't help but feel a little sorry for himself. Besides, employee wages didn't amount to Cochrane's cut of the profit. The only other hurdle that they'd had to overcome was how to launder the ill-gotten natural gas, but that was Raleigh Kincaid and Manico's problem. Fortunately, government inspectors could be bought. Kincaid had purchased a rocky, barren chunk of land in northern Manitoba and drilled a few fracking bores to make it look good. Fallon's marketing information claimed that the gas that ran the thrust came from up there, but the only thing that site produced in actuality was false documentation. Kincaid employed a staff on site whose job it was to make it look on paper as though all the gas came from the Manitoba drilling site, but in reality, it came from the sites in southwestern Ontario through pipes that fed an underground collection system to the thrust-exclusive Manico fueling stations they had set up. Ah, the effects of another helping of cocaine swept through his veins, and Fallon let the convertible pick up speed. As he put some distance between himself and Anderson fucking Arthur in his no-good slideshow, Fallon's mood improved a little, but he agreed with Cochrane. If the jig is up with the fracking, he was ready to pack up his loot and depart. He had no doubts that the findings Anderson presented that morning were accurate. Since the damage was done, he wanted to be on his way to Brazil. He had a hot little tamale named Jacinta to take with him. She was the 22-year-old daughter of a businessman that lived in the neighboring villa to the one that he owned outside of Rio. Thinking of her, of having a little downtime down south where he could lay low, count his money, and explore the delights of her body, he felt his mood improving. The public relations involved with heading up a big corporation like Fallon Motors have been starting to wear on him of late. Too much fraternizing with the PR people pretending to give a shit about what the union thought whenever he tried to implement a new initiative. Who needed the headaches? Of course, he'd like to remain on the board of FLAG. He'd been listening closely that morning. Already they had new ideas of how to profit from what was about to unfold, and he wanted in on that. There was no arguing with the opportunities and advantages that FLAG provided him, but he felt in, a, in his gut that it was time to vamoose for a while lay low, and take a vacation. He began to nod as a plan took shape in his mind. He toyed with the idea of skipping the press up. He needed to arrange a helicopter to take him and Jacinta down to Rio. If he didn't have the show this afternoon at the plant, he could be on his way. He phoned his assistant, Carlos. I'm sorry, boss. It's going to take me at least a couple of hours to get that ready. You might as well do the press op, Carlos said, and Fallon reluctantly agreed. The CBC, as he had learned, was on Beatrice Fillmore's payroll, and Cochran and Kincaid had set this up as PR for the thrust and Manico. They'd arranged for the Green Initiative Award to come to him, and that was something that was not to be trifled with if he wanted to keep his position with flag, so the best thing to do was just get it over with. Besides, no one knows about the fracking damage, not yet, and by the time they find out, I'll be in Rio with Jacinta. He snapped open his mobile and called her to tell her to have her bags packed because they were going to Brazil that afternoon. 
She squealed in, de in delight because for her it was going home. He hung up, savoring the anticipation of the things he would make her do to show him her gratitude when they got there. His cough surged at the thought of her nubile young body. Just a couple more hours, he told himself. As he downshifted and cut across three lanes of traffic to merge onto the westbound 402 to Mount Bridges, he paid no attention to the white-haired gentleman in the Crown Victoria that he cut off in the process. Just another one of the many lives that would be lost if what Anderson Arthur predicted came true. When what Anderson Arthur predicted came true. But Lawrence Fallon didn't spare a thought for that. Lawrence Fallon had not succeeded in life by having regard for the well-being of others. Lawrence Fallon had succeeded in life by having well -be regard for the well-being of himself. Lodi slowed the quad, skirting the edge of the fissure at a crawl. He noticed there was water in it now. The sides were rounding off as more and more of the edges fell into it, so that it was really more of a sinkhole. They were on what was left of King's driveway. Lodi checked for the pickup, but it wasn't around. He downshifted into neutral. Wanda whacked him on the shoulder. Not here, there. She pointed to a stand of pines on the far side of King's bean field. We can hide out there and watch. Go slow. I'll take pictures. He put the machine into first gear and made a slow half circuit of the sinkhole, Wanda snapping away with the digital camera behind him. They drove alongside as close as they dared. As close as we can without leaving tire tracks in the mud was the thought that occurred to him because technically they were now trespassing. He stifled down the thought of what would have happened to him if the edge of the sinkhole they were riding on gave way to collapse down inside. Once they had enough photos to, talk, to document the fissure, he headed for the woods. Inside the path, there was a little turnaround. He used it to swing the quad around until they were facing back out toward the rift in the bean field. He cut the engine, took off his sunglasses, and squinted out over the sinkhole. Wanda was right. This is a good view, he thought. From here, they could see everything, and he turned to face her with a raised eyebrow. Almost a perfect view from here, hey? Pair of quadrats to turn around. Almost like someone comes here to spy once in a while. He set his fist down on his hip and grinned at her. Oh, so what? She gave a little shrug, fiddling with her camera, lining it up to take a wide shot. I keep an eye on things is all. Big deal. I come back here at dark sometimes to see what he's been up to. I take the back way, circling in from Baker's Farm cut the headlights on my quad, and feel my way. I watched them build that thing at night. She gestured toward the tall, skinny structure and chewed on a thumbnail. I only come when the moon is out so I can see. Never did figure out what he does in there. All I know that it is that it's some kind of drilling, and it's crooked. Those workers, they kept their heads down when they were working on it. I can still recall the way the moonlight glinted off their hard hats every time an owl hooted. It spooked them. She broke off and met his eyes, kind of like they were afraid of getting caught. Legitimate contractors don't spook like that. They walk around like they own the place. That's why I know this. We need to get some shots of that building, because it's no coincidence. 
Whatever's going on in that building, you can be sure it was the cause of that hole. She gestured at the sinkhole, then put the camera to her eye to zoom in on the narrow building. As Lodi watched, something about the scene before him niggled at his brain. There was an idea nudging forward, waiting to come through. He tried to clear his mind and let it come. The ugly opening in the earth began 50 feet or so away from the structure, but behind it, there was a pile of rocks. He stared at it until a sudden thought occurred to him. What the hell would a pile of rocks be doing in a bean field? He cocked his head. She turned to look back at him. What? There's something off about that rock pile. Here, give me the camera for a second. She unwound the camera strap from around her neck and handed it to him. He took it, then got off the quad and jogged over to the rock pile, feeling the distinct sensation of heat as he approached. Peering closer, he realized he could see the shimmer of heat waves modeling the air above the rock pile. He walked up cautiously, surprised to find that the rock pile was actually camouflaged for a vent of some kind. There was a metal grate over the top, a hollow tube inside. Peering down into the hole, he saw a flame shoot up towards him. He had time to quickly set the camera to video and hit record before the blast of the updraft became too hot and he had to duck back from it. The flame rose up the pipe, then burned itself off and flared out, subsiding back downward. He peered back down the tube, saw nothing down there but the darkness. He stopped the video, then on a hunch, he squatted and placed his hand flat on the ground. There was a sense of vibration coming from underground. He thought of King that day when Lodi had asked him if he knew what the sound had been. I didn't hear shit. King had told him. My ass, you didn't. Lodi said this out loud, rising up and brushing off his hands. Suddenly he heard a loud whistle. He whipped his head around. Wanda was gesturing wildly for him to come back to the quad. The noise of approaching engines rumbled down the gravel road towards him. He sprinted. He made it into the cover of woods just in time. Ducking out of sight, he climbed back onto the quad as a bright orange semi-truck rolled into view. Behind it, on a flatbed trailer, sat a bulldozer, and a dump truck followed close behind. Both pieces of equipment had the town of Mount Bridges logo on the sides. The truck pulled into a nearby field entrance, close to the sinkhole, and parked. They heard a beeping noise, and then the box tipped up and dumped a load of gravel. Wide-eyed, Wanda shook her head. I told you they were going to fill it in, Lodi heard inside his mind. With the flash turned off, Wanda started snapping pictures. As she worked, she half turned her head and whispered to him, What did you find back there? It's a vent of some kind. Must be gas coming up. There's a flame down in there. Damn near burnt my eyebrows off. She shook her head. The ball's on that man. She took a few more pictures. They watched as a crew jumped out of the truck and began to offload the digger. A man in a matte sundine jersey and track pants stepped to the jagged hole in the gravel road and waved the rest of them over. They lined up around the edge and paused for a moment of discussion, and it was clear they were figuring out a plan. Something about that jersey bothered Lodi, but then he figured out what it was. No orange construction vest, no hard hat. He frowned. These were not city workers then, not without the proper safety gear. 
but they were operating town equipment. Something wasn't adding up. And also, hadn't they got here awfully fast considering had it only been a short time since the quake that caused this? Within moments, the crew had started their machine and set to work, scraping the gravel from the pile into the fissure in the road. Wanda stowed the camera back inside her jacket pocket. Must want that road filled in awful bad, she remarked. Lodi nodded. I'll say. They watched a while longer. When the workers were making enough racket that Lodi figured it was safe to start up the quad without being heard, he reversed to the turnaround and took off through the woods with no particular idea where he was heading other than away. He needed time to think. According to Wanda, the operation on King's Land was clandestine. If that was true, then King was taking a pretty big risk. Have to be a hell of a payoff to make it worth his while, Lodi thought. Lodi went over his impressions of the man. It struck him that King would not be averse to bending the rules a bit for the right price. Must be a nice pile of cash on the barrel. But this stretch of the road fell under the municipality of Mount Bridges' jurisdiction. Would King actually go so far as to hire a crew on his own dime to perform unauthorized repairs on town roads? If he was to blame, he would, Lodi thought. He chewed that over. The city probably had a policy in place that called for an official assessment to strategize repairs like these. There would be engineers' reports, for starters, probably drainage. And yet the dozer had arrived within the hour and set to work. By workers dressed in civvies, he thought, recalling the guy in the Sundean jersey. Thinking some more, he concluded that there was no way those repairs were on the up and up. It occurred to him that they might be able to find this out by paying a visit to the municipal offices. He knew it was Saturday and it might be empty, but if the town's equipment was being used, somebody there had to know about it. He pulled the quad over to the side of an open field and braked, then turned to Wanda. Does the municipal building still back onto farmland, and can we still get there on this thing? He relayed his thoughts to her. Wanda nodded, her eyes sparkling. You reading my mind? I was thinking that same thing. I'd have never bothered with the old mayor, Moody, because with him, if shady deals were going on, he was likely to be in on it. But the new mayor, Mayor Walters, she's good. I know her a bit. She's on the board at the women's shelter with me. And from what I know of her, I like her. Let's go find her. Lodi grinned. Let's go. Inside the municipal building, they were taking turns calling their friends and contacts. There was an echoing quality in the lounge that made it better if one person made a phone call at a time. They called their friends, their co-workers, their family. They called whatever press they could think of, left messages. To all of them, they said the same thing. Not safe. Flood's coming. Share the video. Leave the evac zone. Go. When it was Jenna's turn, she called the police chief on his personal cell phone number, which she had access to because she was the mayor. He did not pick up. That's weird, she thought. But then a memory popped up. It had been a fundraiser event for the Conservation Authority back when she was a grad student working on her thesis. Couldn't have been more than five years ago. She remembered that an awkward GIS technician had asked her to dance. She had circled the floor with him a time or two and was not having too bad a time. 
when a scene by the bar caught her eye. It wasn't a commotion, not really, just a series of flash bulbs going off, drawing attention. It was the press, taking photos of Mayor Moody and another man Jenna didn't recognize, the two of them leaning drunkenly on each other, cocktails in hand, neither glass looking like it had very much coke in it. She may not have known the man then, but she did now, she realized. It was the chief of police who had been cheersing it up with the old mayor that night. They were cronies. Jenna gave a sad little half smile and put the phone down. She turned away to stand by the window. How had she never realized that the chief had been in Moody's pocket? It explained how they were able to get away with dumping toxic waste without being caught. The police were looking the other way. The chief was definitely one of Moody's cronies in the old boys network, and that meant that he was probably on the Fallon payroll as well. Wonder how many brown envelopes of cash he's taken through all of this, she thought. She chewed her thumbnail, thinking, and then became aware of the sound of the front door downstairs flying open. She heard the stomp of feet running up the stairs of the building. It's them, she thought wildly. The panic bat was back, flapping its wings around her heart. Wide-eyed, she looked to the stairs, but it was only Mary's 15-year-old daughter, Tamara Lee, and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Carrie Sweetwater. Mom, Tamara said, running up to Mary. Mom, they closed the rec center for the day. Did you feel that earthquake? Some bricks fell off the roof. They said it wasn't safe. They sent us home, so we came up here to check on you guys. Mary gave her daughter a quick hug and to see if Carrie could borrow my car for the rest of the day, no doubt. Mary narrowed her eyes at her daughter's boyfriend. Carrie was just a little bit older and a little bit more adventurous than Mary would have preferred, and Mary had a long history of eyeballing him warily. Carrie grinned at her. Tamara wanted to go to my house and hang out in my bedroom, just the two of us playing vids on my bed, but I convinced her we should come up here and check on you, Miss Lee. Carrie winked at Jenna almost imperceptibly. In spite of herself, Jenna almost grinned. Jenna knew Mary had her issues with the good-looking teen, but for her part, Jenna liked him. She reached out and put a hand on Carrie's arm. Coffee in the kitchenette. Go help yourself. Aw, thanks, man. You're the coolest. The lanky teen crossed the room in three long strides and ducked into the little alcove. He emerged a moment later with a steaming steaming mug for himself and one for Tamara. Here you go, babe, he said, handing it to her. Jenna saw Mary roll her eyes. So what's everybody doing here on a Saturday? Tamara asked, plopping herself down on the couch beside Deb and parking her feet on the coffee table. Someone win the lottery? She wiggled her eyebrows at the cardboard check over the rim of her coffee mug. We're supposed to be giving that check to the women's shelter, waiting on a reporter from the newspaper to come and take the picture, but he seems to be running late. Said there's some other big story he's got to chase down. Deb smiled at Tamara and propped her feet up beside the teens. Wouldn't surprise me. Shit's getting weird around town. We saw some strange things happening on the way here. Hey, Tamara? Carrie dropped in on the couch on the other side of his girlfriend causing the two girls to shimmy a bit to make room. Carrie put his feet up also, his size 13 skate shoes dwarfing Tamara's tiny pink keds and Deb's smart leather boots. Jenna settled into the armchair. What kind of weird shit? 
Well, for one thing, there's a sewage leak on Piedmont, some kind of black shit coming up through a great bunch of cops standing around keeping people back from it. It's almost knee deep now. You can't even get through with a car. Plus, the back wall fell out of the liquor store on Graham after that last quake. People are looting it. Cops were there, too, trying to figure out what to do. Right, babe? Tamara looked at Carrie. He nodded. My buddy Craig got a two for a blue, Carrie said conversationally, then swiveled his head to look at Mary, who was leaning up against her desk with her arms crossed, frowning. I would never do a thing like that, Ms. Lee, or think it's cool. Stealing is wrong. He took a sip of his coffee and smiled at her innocently. Vic looked at Jenna. Black shit coming up from the ground, eh? Could be a sign of the subsidence. Jenna looked at Jay and he shrugged. It could be, he sighed, but I hope not. If it is, that means we're probably far a lot farther along the timeline than we think we are. He scrubbed a hand across his jaw, frowning. Tamara frowned. She looked at her mother, saw a line of worry etched on Mary's brow. Mom? Mom, what's going on? Nothing you need to worry about. Jenna smiled at her sadly. Mary, she said. They're going to find out. It's all over social media, or so we hope. They may as well hear it from us. Mary scowled at Jenna for a moment and then softened. Fine, you can tell them. You understand it better than me. Tell us what? Mom, you're scaring me. Tamara blinked at Carrie. Jenna took a deep breath. A rich corporation has been fracking illegally in southwestern Ontario. It's what's causing the quakes. This entire area will need to be evacuated. The landmass is going to sink and then flood. Carrie and Tamara looked at each other. Do you think it could be Cochrane? Tamara asked him. Carrie raked his fingers backwards through his long bangs and shrugged. Maybe. This caught Jenna off guard. You guys know about him? Carrie nodded. We're on this subreddit called Occupy. It talks about all kinds of things. Black Lives Matter, inequality, climate. It talks about the oppression of the majority of the world by a handful of elites. Cochrane is the name of this shadowy figure that the forums think are running things. He's supposed to be the kingpin, but no one's ever proven his existence. All we have are rumors. You say there's massive ecological damage here in this part of the world? It wouldn't surprise me at all if he was the one doing it. That clown's a dick. Jenna took a beat to absorb this. She had never thought of Carrie and Tamara before as having knowledge about any of this, but she found that the news that they did pleased her in some way. Well, it seems that this will be less of a surprise to you than we thought. You guys might as well watch the video. I'm already watching it, Tamara said, holding up her phone. Sure enough, Jenna could see the opening sequence beginning to unfold. Carrie snuggled in closer beside her. Let me see too, he said, and together they watched it. When it had finished, Tamara had tears in her eyes, but Carrie's face was filled with anger and something else. Despair, maybe. They wrecked our land, he said hoarsely, and Jenna saw the tears in his eyes. He shook his head to clear it. Give me that thing. He held out his hand for her phone. She gave it to him. What are you doing? I'm posting this link to the Occupy forums. If anyone needs to see this, it's those guys. They've been after proof of Cochran doing something illegal for a long time. If this isn't it, I don't know what is. He 
He hit send. Cynthia sat at her computer desk, seething. She was looking at her Twitter feed, where a link to the slideshow was beginning to trend. Instead of deleting it, the bitch had put the goddamn slideshow on the internet. Cynthia closed her eyes as tight as she could and concentrated on wishing Jenna harm, wishing her pain, wishing her death. Gilles Doucette was on his way to make all of those things happen to Jenna Walters and more, and Cynthia was glad for that. She distracted herself for a moment by picturing it, by picturing Jenna's face contorted in pain, screaming under the massive weight of Gilles Doucette, also known as the Fox. Cynthia had fucked up big time, and any moment now, she was going to have to admit that to her father. Walter Jennings was not a patient man, nor a kind one. All of Cynthia's early life had been a battle to please him, but despite her success in the rowing, sailing, and equestrian fields, she had never been able to do that, no matter how many blue ribbons she brought home. Having sired no sons, Jennings had been forced to live with only she, Cynthia, as his progeny, and it had been with great condescension and derision that he had finally agreed to groom her for the flag board. Don't you fuck this up, she could still remember him saying to her, that one June morning when she had been 21 years old and a recent graduate of the best business finance program in the country, and she had walked beside her father into the flag headquarters for the very first time to take her first meeting's minutes and learn what she would learn about the way the world was run. The world inside the international philanthro-capitalist conglomerate known as FLAG had been an eye-opener, even for Cynthia. She had heard some outrageous things, widespread profiteering, killing, and exploitation. That was what it boiled down to, because if an indigenous village or endangered species stood in the way of Flag's profits, down it went. Flag's profits trumped all. Cynthia had learned to cultivate a bland expression when the darkest things were being discussed, with her father glaring at her over the screen of her laptop, almost daring her to show some reaction of disapproval, but she had not. She had even begun to smirk a little, like the rest of them, when a plan came together that had a high human or wildlife cost, and she felt that slowly, after four years of quietly taking the minutes and building her own wealth portfolio, she had begun to earn some respect around the board. All of that was meaningless now, however, because Cynthia had been the one to cause the leak. She could still feel the core deep rage of it that had her body vibrating, it was the unfairness of it. She hadn't meant to hit send. That was all. It had been an accident. But now the bitch had put the slideshow on the internet. The thought kept circulating through her mind because that never happened. Things that Eric Cochran wanted to happen happened, not the opposite. This bitch was doing the unthinkable, and that was what had Cynthia vibrating with anger. She googled around, found Jenna's personal Twitter page, scrolled through it, saw a link to the video there as well. They had put the fucking thing on YouTube of all of the wrong email addresses she could have sent it to, Cynthia thought. At the top of the page was a pinned tweet, the one with the link to the slideshow. Cynthia laughed, then snorted, then, her, then puffed her cheeks out and blew a breath between pursed lips, pressing the heels of her hands to her temple. 
At an early age, she had been taught to maintain outward composure at all times. People could pick up signs of distress from a person's body language, her mother had often told her. A cool exterior was something people turned toward for leadership in times of crisis. She managed to regain some outward composure before the door to her office slammed open, smashing against the drywall behind it. Walter Jennings stormed in, his face a mask of fury. Christ, Cynthia, what is it this time? Do you know how busy I am? I've got to arrange a helicopter and get your mother sorted out to meet us at the summer house. Cynthia regarded him coolly, arching an eyebrow. She sighed, then waved her hand towards the computer screen. The slideshow was still running, the number of views and comments increasing rapidly. It seems I may have sent this out in error, she told him calmly. Jennings scowled at her, then turned his gaze towards the screen. Hashtag get off the Bruce, he said, and then his eyes bugged out as he recognized the images on the screen. But that's the information from this morning, the thing that Stephen Archer's kids showed us, the slide deck. Cochran wants that kept contained. What the fuck do you mean you sent it out? Who'd you send it to? Her, she said, showing the profile picture of Jenna in her canoe to her father on her smartphone. Genwall 316. Cynthia's cool exterior didn't falter, but inside she braced for the storm that her next words would unleash. That's your email, right? Only I fucked up. I put in Genwall 313, and when Cochran shot Lloyd Preston, I clicked the mouse by accident. I meant to check the addresses, but I hadn't done it yet, and when the gun went off, I flinched, and the copy that was meant for your inbox went to hers. She hit a key and pulled up Jenna's other Twitter feed. She's the mayor of a small town west of London. I realized my mistake and got her number. I told her to delete it. I threatened her, but the little bitch did this. She clicked again and went back to the slideshow. The number of views and retweets were still climbing. She cringed internally. I tried to take care of it, Daddy, but she wouldn't listen to me, and now I don't. I don't know what to do. Cynthia allowed a tremulous waver, waver to creep into her voice. She looked up at her father and allowed a single tear to form along her sculpted lashes. I'm scared, Daddy, she whispered, biting delicately at her lips. Mr. Cochran's going to kill me. Jennings turned toward her, thunderstruck. He gaped at his daughter's artfully trembling chin. Then he exploded. His hand snaked out. He smacked her hard across the cheek, the echo of the blow resounding. Don't you pull that helpless little girl routine on me, you useless whore, he roared. Furious anger radiated from him. He stalked across the room and back. I trusted you. I brought you in, convinced them you could handle it. But no, you leaked the slideshow to the internet. They're going to kill me too, he yelled this last, spittle flying from his lips. He raked his hands through his hair, then planted them on the front edge of her desk. He hung there, head between his shoulders, breathing hard. As he has suggested, Cynthia dropped the innocent act. She glared at him. If you've finished with your tantrum, she said icily, 
perhaps we can have a grown-up conversation about what to do about this mess, since, as you point out, you have as much to lose as I have. He gaped at her, but she was right. His mouth snapped shut. There was hatred in his eyes as he looked at her, but she had a point. They were in this thing together because he had been the one to bring her into Flag's inner circle, and the slip would not have happened otherwise. If they didn't get things back under the control, they'd both be dead. Call her back, he said quietly, his gray eyes taking on the same steely dullness as hers. I'll talk to her. Cynthia hit the redial button on her phone and handed it to him. He put it to his ear and listened to it ring. And then a quiet voice spoke up. Hello? All right, guys, I'm going to leave it there for today. This is a long chapter, and I will try to get back tomorrow with the second half. Wherever you are listening from today, I hope that you are keeping your spirits up and finding something to bring you positivity and joy in your life. I wish you all the best. Stay safe.